We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one word. What is the other word? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's gonna be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that, but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sights TV podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, I'm excited for this week. Do you know why? Uh, I don't know, Kate. Why are you excited for this week? Because two awesome things are coming out this week. Uh, first, I get to go see Much Do About Nothing on Friday. Again, I'm very excited about this. I've been talking about it for weeks, so I've probably overhyped it for everyone. But even more exciting than that, what I'm even more excited about than going to see Much Do About Nothing is being able to watch In the Family with my family when it comes out on DVD next Tuesday. And if you have not seen this film, see this film when it comes out on DVD. It's ridiculously good. I, uh, I, this is one of the only times you're ever going to be up on, actually, you're up on me on both those films, although one of them you can thank me for, <laughs> uh, but in the family, I, I have not had a chance to see yet, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Yes, I got to see that one at Ebert Fest, and it, like I said, it's coming out this Tuesday on DVD, and it's ridiculously good, so definitely check that out. So that's, that's what I'm looking forward to this week. How is, how has your week been? What are you looking forward to this week? I'm looking forward to, uh competently living my life in an ordered <laughs> fashion. I'm not sure when that's going to start happening. Well, it sounds like a very mature goal, very, you know, very responsible. Oh, yes. I applaud your effort, your decision. It's a good it's a good good call. We had fun talking with you guys this week on on Twitter and on the website and Facebook and everything. Got to talk with you guys a little bit about some of the pilots cuz it's still pilot month going going crazy strong over at Sound on Sight with the various pilot reviews. I feel like I have a couple, I have several more that are going to be coming. My Taxi and Cosby Show reviews are already up. I have Alias and Battlestar Galactica already written, and then I have at least five more I'm going to be writing this week. So lots, lots of piloty talk happening, sir. Yes. Piloty talk. Piloty talk. Uh, unfortunately, I'm slightly busy with um, the reams and reams of unpaid work I have to deal with. They don't even have to do with the unpaid work I do for Sound on Sight. So, yeah, it's I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, clearly, everyone is uh, more than pulling my weight in my absence. Well, I had fun talking a little bit with uh, Miles McNutt and, and Josh and some other people about comedy, and Scott, about comedy pilots in general. Do you have any thoughts on those? I mean, I, I, I find it hilarious and awesome that right after we start Pilot Month at Sound on Sight, uh, Firewall and Iceberg are spending their summer rewatching pilots and reviewing them. There's a couple other things happening online where I guess it was just sort of in the the uh the the nerdosphere where we are all, we're all kind of talking about about pilots any thoughts on comedy pilots since we won't be getting a review from you this month uh, they're generally not very good um i mean that's true of pilots in general uh which is what, why i think this whole thing is kind of hilarious um but uh i when i think about like really good comedy pilots of the last decade a lot of them are animated uh like the archer pilot is really good uh the venture brothers pilot is pretty good 
Although the show got much better later. Also true of Archer. Yeah, I don't know. They're comedy pilots. They're, I mean, as as already acknowledged for all sorts of other reasons, it's just, it takes, it's usually not until, I mean, if you think of the best series, the best comedy series, like, for instance, uh, Early Office or Parks and Rec, both their first season slash pilots were sort of disastrous. And uh, I guess the it's been a while since the show had like a really bad pilot and then went on to be great. I feel like that's not been happening recently, and we've just sort of been having all the promise or lack thereof demonstrated at the start, which is sort of dispiriting. I think that's an interesting point about the animated pilots. I would throw Futurama in there. I think that one has a really good – it's, it's mm. a premise pilot, but it's I think – It's an excellent pilot. It's a very good pilot, and I think it might have to do with – just the fact that it the the development process for animation is so much longer. They have to draw everything, so it it can take longer to to get everything going with that. And so maybe they have more time to really flesh out the world. They they need to know what the character design is going to be pr- from pretty early on. So maybe mm-hmm. that's part of why. I'd throw a uh, moral oral in there too, which is a really interesting show. Yeah, so there was it was fun talking with you guys about this stuff um, over the course of the, the previous week. Um, I put the, the Make Kate Watch stuff poll up a little late this week. I will have the next week's poll up today. So by the time you're listening to this, it should already be up with lots of fun fun choices. But you guys did actually get a chance to vote. So we'll be talking about some Daily Show with John Oliver a little later in, in the podcast. That was a lot of fun. And then, of course, at the end of the podcast, we welcomed on Todd Vanderwerf from the AV Club to talk Slings and Arrows. What? What? Because I think that's one of the favorite, my favorite shows that we've discovered through the DVD shelf. I loved this show. So that's going to be at the end of the podcast. It's pretty great. And the fact that it's Canadian and about theater is sort of mind blowing to me. It's good stuff. Also, at Sound Insight, there are a few things to mention. First of all, Bill Macy is writing this really interesting column that I wanted to, to make sure to mention about the history of HBO. Of course, if, if by column you mean novella, but sure. Well, yeah, he already has the first two parts up, um, a preface and an introduction. But this, you know, obviously Bill worked for HBO for 25, 27 years, something like that. So that should be, yeah, you guys should check out that at Sound Unsight, it's really interesting to see more of an insider's perspective and really sort of how HBO functioned in its earlier days. Did you know that when every time you watch an HBO series and you get the, at the opening, that's actually Bill's voice? Interesting. Yes, I'm sure that 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 sounds completely legit. That and other facts you'll pull out from his article. (laughs) And then also I wanted to mention uh, Sound Insight is currently fundraising because we're going to TIFF. Well, I don't know if I'm going with the budgeting and all the like, but you will be at TIFF, Simon. And the rest, uh, many more of the Sound Insight crew are, are trying to go to TIFF so that we can give you guys really great film coverage from from the Toronto International Film Festival. Unfortunately, they keep raising their ticket prices. And so <laughs> we are trying to to have a little bit of a donation drive. Um, there are a few pri- prizes for various donation levels. Simon, would you like to tell us about these? Yeah, I, the uh, prizes, if you'd like to call them that, are rewards, uh, range anywhere from just helping to program the podcast to actually appearing on it. Uh, we also have um, some advertising available on the site, as well as, hey, if you feel like donating over 200 bucks, which for us is actually a really huge amount of money, uh, you can actually come on one of our podcasts and and either co-host or plug your business or plug your cause or whatever you want to do. Uh, it's really it's your time. You can come on and 
make animal noises for five minutes as far as I'm concerned, or five hours, and we'll <laughs> take the time to upload it, which will cost us money, but it'll be worth it because you did that. Uh, and if you donate over, I don't know, $10,000, we'll name a podcast after you. We'll rename the Televerse after you. How about that? <laughs> well, it's actually, you should mention that this is for Sound on Sight, Sword of Cinema, Masterpiece Cinema, and Almost Art House. We're not really participating in this as Televerse because we're a TV podcast. It's a film festival and programming a film doesn't really work for in in here yet. Televerse. But it, it's... But, but it's valid for all their podcasts. It is. And and honestly, there's, there's a much larger listener base to every other of these podcasts. So if you are if you would like to promote a cause or, or want to come on, you're probably better off being on one of the other podcasts anyways. But I know we did get a donation from Bob. And as he instructed, Bob, I will do my best to make sure that gets spent on Hookers and Blow as, as you have you know earmarked it. So I will make sure that I do what I can to... To have your vision of TIFF for us planned well, out. I mean, honestly, I only mention because your appetite is so insatiable. I know. It's it's expensive. I need my, of, uh, I need my stuff. None of that dime store shit either. <laughs> well, I did get to go to TIFF last year and hang out somewhat. I don't know if I'll be able to make it up. I probably won't be going to films, but I might just come up to try it. Because Josh is coming from Phoenix. I've never met Josh. i got to meet Josh. Yeah, and Al White is coming up from the UK, and it's just... It's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be crazy. But that's, you know, as we coming later, our coverage will be coming later in the year. We would like to be able to get as much film coverage for you guys as possible. It'd be better if TIFF wouldn't raise their ticket prices every year, but so it goes. Anyway, so we wanted to mention that at the top of the show. Let's get into our week in TV, and we're going to kick things off with the comedies. Hi. Hey, Monk. How are you? Okay. Is B there? Or she's sleeping? Um, it's, it's pretty late here. Could I talk to her? No, she doesn't feel like talking. She's sleeping. Well, what's going on with you? Well, she's depressed. She lost her job at the bank. Oh, shit. Yeah, sucks. Were you, were you there when it happened? Yeah, I was there. Ugly. Was it your fault? No. Was it? No. Can I talk to B? No. Will you tell her that I'm really sorry that she lost her job? Yeah. I'm really not going to talk to B. Is that what's... I'm just going to talk to you? She's sleeping, I said. Okay, I'm going to... I'm going to go. Sorry, B. Night. Night. This week for the comedies, we have Make Kate Watch The Daily Show with John Oliver. Thank you guys for that, by the way. The, I was going to watch it anyways. It was wonderful that you guys agreed with me on that one. Um, Adventure Time, another five more short gravels, uh, Inside Amy Schumer, Unpleasant Truths, Veep, Running, Family Tree, Welcome to America, and the Venture Brothers, Sphinx Rising. Let's start with The Daily Show. Did you check out some of this week's episodes with new guest host, John Oliver? I watched the first two, so the Seth Rogen and Armando Inucci episodes. Uh, I mean, I was going to watch, honestly, I would have watched the Armando Inucci episode anyway, because that guy is... I, he's as much of a hero to me as he is to clearly John Oliver, and I, I love that they just went full on Brit for that episode and just totally <laughs> embraced it. Uh, I would say that uh, I, I thought it was interesting the degree to which he was literally doing exactly the job that John Stewart does. I mean, it's different by virtue of the fact that it's John Oliver and they get to do tea and crumpets jokes, but 
other than that, in terms of the the tone of the coverage and even in terms of specific gags, it was everything was straight out of the John Stewart playbook, which I think actually worked. Yeah, I think he's doing a really good job, and I I think he's fit in really. Um, consistently and, and quickly into that role. And uh, it's going to, obviously, I, I I still think Jon Stewart's amazing, but I'm going to miss John Oliver when Stewart comes back. You know, I don't know how they really, I don't know that they can do a four show block with Oliver getting his own show as well. And Sam B maybe, I don't know, but I would not be opposed to a John Oliver kind of show as well. I would be shocked if after this he didn't get his own show in some way or another, because I think people are going to get really attached. Also, she's been on the show for a very long time, but whenever it is that Samantha Bee does leave The Daily Show, someone give her a, another permanent job, because she is amazing. She it just needs to be restated. Yeah, def- completely amazing. I, I always love her work on The Daily Show. Usually it's actually some of my favorite. Whenever they send the correspondence out and they do various... Uh, you know, interview segments or, you know, she's almost universally the best. She's great. Well, she's been there for like 10 years or something like that. She's, she's by far the, the person who's the correspondent who's been there the longest and been the most consistent uh, source really of comedy for them. I don't know if it's just cause it's a great gig and she's married to Jason Jones. Obviously he works there too. And you know, so I, I don't know if it's just because they like working together, so they don't want to leave, but she could definitely get her own, you know, parks and rec, Mindy project, Louie, I would love to see the Sam B yeah. show. I also love how right now, I mean, I, I can't be sure, but I but it's at least half non-Americans populating the Daily Show at this point. I mean, you've got all the you've got the Canadian block and John Oliver, so I'm I'm enjoying that aspect. Definitely. Now, did you have a favorite uh, bit that because I watched the I think the whole week of coverage. Did you have a favorite bit of, of what you watched besides the Armando Iannucci interview? Uh, which I wish I could have watched the entire thing of, but it's region blocked, so damn you, Comedy Central. Um, the I, I I really love the opening bit with them mocking uh, outrage at the NSA stuff while actually just being annoyed at John Oliver. I thought that was that was you know they needed to open with something about that, and I in both senses, and I, I think that pretty much hit the nail on the head. Nice. I think I got, I have to give it to the uh, Gay Watch International Edition. Starting first with the discussion of the Boy Scouts and then the uh, anti anti marriage equality riots and protesting in in France and then Russia. I think that was the highlight for me this week. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really it's been a lot of fun and I look forward to more weeks with John Oliver at the desk. Um, let's move on to the rest of the comedy. So we're just going to kind of talk about the week in, in general avoid spoilers um you watched adventure time i have to catch up with this i haven't watched it since since y'all made me but i, I do very <laughs> much like it tell me about this uh five grables thing well it, it's it's been happening a little bit more recently but i think the first uh five short grables episode was last season or the season before and basically it, it's hosted by this um peripheral character who only exists to do this i believe and I, i'm not as fully versed in adventure time lore as i should be but Essentially, it's sort of like the Adventure Time equivalent of Tales of Interest uh, from Futurama. And this week was, this episode was exceptionally odd, uh, even for a five short Grables episode, even for an Adventure Time episode. And I just have to mention that the, um, I'm not like, Lemon Grab is probably one of my least favorite characters, but I did enjoy the two Lemon Grabs and their very disturbing uh, Grable, which ended with one Lemon Grab eating the other which I was not anticipating. 
and that's going to haunt my nightmares for a long time. And every and every though the entire last two minutes had me in stitches. So good job, Adventure Time. I'm looking forward though to um, I'm assuming it's going to get back to the um, to the lore of the series in a big way in the last couple of episodes because uh, especially the first episodes of this season were just completely trippy in a way I was not anticipating. So I'm hoping for more of that. What's a lemon grab? Lemon grab is the one who talks like this. Oh, you remember? God. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That that is that is somewhat disturbing. Um, elsewhere in comedy this week, I thought we had one of the most solid and consistent Amy Schumer's inside Amy Schumer's until we got to the interview segment, which was terrible. Um, what did you think of Amy inside Amy Schumer this week? It wasn't one of my favorites. Uh, you're right. The interview wasn't very good. Uh, the sketches I also thought were pretty hit and miss oh uh, come I, on the four-handed massage that was hilarious it was okay uh did it, it it didn't do it for me like it apparently did for you uh i, I don't know i find amy schumer is just it, it's i i it was starting off with a ton of promise and i don't think it's quite panning out as i, I mean as much as i as she's an awesome to spend time with and i the stand-up segments have been universally good but i i do feel like it's I think the break between seasons, it's already been renewed, thank goodness, is going to be good for her to sort of retool it a little bit, maybe, and and get some more solid ideas for sketches, because uh, it sometimes feels like it's running on empty. I do have to say, though, I'm glad that as much as I enjoyed some of the specific sketches like Oh Nutters <laughs> and some of these other earlier sketches, I'm glad we haven't gone back to them. I'm glad they haven't become recurring bits over the course of the season. If they want to, you know, bring him back like once a season, do something else set in some of these different ones that have been more successful, uh, make them recurring sketches, that is, then I'm, I'm all for that. But maybe once a season or something like that, I think that shows a lot of restraint. And I've really appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, I do think, though, that one area she should just totally shy away from is and I'm not sure if it even happened this week, but any sketch that has to do with... Um, I guess, like, cheap practical effects or just any of the sort of wackier sketches, they almost universally don't work. I, I feel like her strength is really in, you know, low-key character and dialogue-based humor and not in that sort of more outsized stuff. Well, and I think she's also really good at the every woman um, mm -hmm. put into strange situations and then reacting. I thought the therapy session, particularly the way that ended, which is, of course, how it had to end, worked really well because of, of her ability to play the straight woman um, for most of it. So I don't know. I, I'm i still very much enjoying it. I guess I would, at this point, I would say I like Keen Peel a little more. But she does seem like she has a voice in a way that Keen Peel, they started having more of a voice looking at some of these different race issues from their unique perspective of, well, not unique, but less common perspective of both being biracial. Um, and, and, and then they sort of kind of backed away from that in favor of just, you know, funny, which is good you know i understand funny is important and with amy <laughs> schumer it also seems like you know she she has this this more female-centric perspective that she is is playing with but in you know some of the interview choices especially like this week why was she interviewing jim norton's bodyguard i have no idea and i'm i that has me worried for the next for the last couple episodes as to is has she run out of people already oh no yeah, I don't know, but um, we st we're, st we're still enjoying it. Uh, the rest of the week we had um, Veep Family Tree Venture Brothers. I feel like we should talk about Family Tree because I liked Monkey this week. Well, yeah, Monkey showed up via a Skype call and um, his sister didn't even properly make an appearance, which I thought was an interesting idea. I mean, the issue with Monkey for me is that 
that's such a it's such a show destabilizing idea. I mean, for instance, you think of um, a movie like uh, The Beaver, written by Kyle Killen, who we love. Uh, you know, that character serves those characters rather serve as the center of an entire feature film. And here we're, we have a, we have a character in a very, or characters, that's confusing, in a very similar situation, but they're just on the periphery. And I feel like that's a little bit too much for a supporting character. Not to mention the fact that it's sort of disturbing. And it's, I, I feel like this was the only scene where this, where that was, that felt like it had its proper context and given its proper weight. But I feel like it's a problem with the show in general and actually sort of Christopher Guest's movies in recent years that there's not always the, the right balance taken with taken between sort of broad humor and the sort of pathos elements, as well as sort of the, the outright depressing stuff that's usually looking in the periphery. And I feel like that's still been an issue for me here. It felt just so much, more real i guess that scene with just the monkey on the skype call just because you can't see the sister so it feels just the the that method of of talking to monkey as it were you didn't have the sister right next to it so she could the monkey felt more truthful i guess because it was it was a completely put on persona as opposed to the sister having to sit right next to it and everybody can see that it's you know i don't know i guess just that element of it made it it really hit home to me that scene, and I, I think Godard's performance in that was good too. I would agree about the balance not necessarily working. Um, some of the elements of him going to America were were more successful than than others. I, I did. I was starting to lose the humor of the 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 various American jokes, especially from from Kitty. So so some of the things like that didn't quite work for me. Fred Willard was a little too broad for me, but I, I still am enjoying the show. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we get to the end and there's like hot tub humor and stuff, it's like, I feel like, again, this is my issue with recent Christopher Guest, where it feels like it can't help but get caught up in the sort of more broad, more ribald humor when it really doesn't need it, because you've got lots of witty actors and lots of interesting ideas. You've got more than enough uh, comic potential around without having to resort to that, and also that stuff is generally less funny anyway. So, uh, see also some Alexander Payne, but whatever especially serious shades of about Schmidt at the end there anyway. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it in general, but I'm sort of hoping it can iron out some of this. And I don't think it would hurt to like, whenever it takes its character seriously, it works. And I feel like it should do that more often, more consistently. Any thoughts on Veep? Uh, Veep was, was really good this week. Um, it's interesting to see them. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm never quite sure how the show feels about Selena, if Inuchi and company actually have a grudging respect for her just because she stands up for herself, or if we're meant to uh, feel, <laughs> I mean, she, she acknowledges repeatedly that, Oh yeah, I, I did. I did a good thing there. I mean, I was lying, but it was good <laughs> uh, and things like that. And, and I just find it interesting how much gentler the show is than something like the thick of it. And I, again, I'm going to attribute that to the remove that Inuchi has. I mean, he talks, uh, he talked on the daily show about how, uh, people in D.C. get starstruck and make comparisons to the West Wing when they're talking about their real jobs and things like that. But I kind of think it works both ways. I think that he's uh, slightly starstruck by D.C. and um, there therefore doesn't necessarily have the means to be as uh, as cruel as perhaps I would always like him to be. But there is still a barbed edge to it. And I'm, I'm enjoying watching uh, he and, and his uh, writing staff sort of negotiate that balance. 
Well, and I think it's also playing to the strengths of their lead. I think that uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus. I mean, I think she she works very well with the tone that they have here, as opposed to something like you know in the in the loop or the thick of it. Um, I you know I think that the tone of the show needs to follow its central performance. Yeah, you 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 can't really see her as Nicola Murray. No, not not so much. Uh so, so I, I I don't know. I wouldn't I don't know how much of it is is just the starstruck element or, or not wanting to do that or even just wanting to do something slightly different comedically. But I definitely agree that there is a tonal difference between the two. I um I look forward to seeing this felt, you know, the most like a cliffhanger that we've ever had for this series. So I'm actually kind of curious to see what they're going to do in the next final few episodes. Um, and if next season becomes, it becomes a comic show piece for whoever the Danny Chun, right? Danny Chung. Yeah. Yeah. If, for that character, if that, you know, is a potential future for the show, but um, no, I'm still, I'm still, you know, definitely laughing and just her high on the St. John's wart was uh was pretty pretty hilarious and just the the reality of the the glass was pretty entertaining for me Mm -hmm. yeah and i thought the zings were on another level this week like she's a walking metaphor for her own life (laughs) or whatever that was uh just yeah there i felt like it's it's taken a while but i feel like the zings are actually almost at at malcolm tucker level they're not quite there yet but they're it's it's been a gradual climb without relying on the same shock value no, like no, no, not, yeah, yeah, not not the same kind, but I just feel like in terms of me laughing as much. Oh, like yeah, no, the... no, I think it's harder to do it without, yeah. you know, without that, that amazing Peter Capaldi performance, but also just the vocabulary that goes with that character. I think it's easier to get laughs when you have that sort of element to your to your character than it is if you take that away. So I think they're doing a good job. Venture Brothers, hilarious again. Yes, Venture Brothers continues to, um, I, I, I still really dig what they're doing this season with the kids. Um, the, uh, I thought the, the, I'm just astounded at how much plot they can cram into 21 minutes of TV and actually still have it be relatively coherent. You've got like this, the, the post credits scene is like a, is like a dual climax, which is like, which is actually really elegantly constructed and it's, it's really not easy to do that. So I, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that they took the, the I mean, they took what, three years between seasons. And you also have to remember that it's mostly just two guys doing all the work. Uh, so, uh, I mean, from what I understand, they're hoping to uh, not take as long between the next couple seasons, which would be nice. But I just, I really appreciate the level, the, it, the actually kind of insane level of craft uh, going into this. And they're, they're clearly pros at this point. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely, absolutely digging this. Well, and again, this is another episode that clearly draws heavily on the mythology of the show. Which I don't know, but it still worked for me, and you do know, and it sounds like it worked for you. So, so they're they're serving two masters rather successfully at this yeah. point. All, all you really need to know is that Sphinx is a former crime fighting agency which got vacated by people who have now joined a different crime fighting agency. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Court- it doesn't, yeah. matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If you know, you know. If you don't, yeah. you don't. And it, it doesn't change anything. Well, what won yeah. the week for you? What was your most successful comedy? I, I would be happy to give it to either Venture Brothers or Veep. I think they're they're both on a roll right now. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought they're both very good, but I think I laughed the most at The Daily Show, so I'm going to give it to that this week. All right. And now let's take a break and come back and talk some reality. Oh, 
was the I, the diva dance i think is what it's called from fifth element which was the the dance music that one of the finalists or the i should say not finalists but one of the guys who made it through to the green mile and so you think you can dance this week what did his solo to and so i was watching so you think you can dance and jade came up to do his his solo and i was like that's the fifth element song awesome i will use it on the podcast and the reason i'm using it on the podcast is that i really don't care about the voice at this point we're down to our <laughs> final three this is you know we i watched the final performances the solos for each of the the three final contestants and um danielle's gonna win um, that's just going to happen based on how they're structuring the votes with with itunes and I think it's not good for the show that she's going to win, but um, that's what's going to happen. Once again, they crowned a winner. The The producers and the show kind of decided who was going to win at about, I don't know, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. And uh, they have made sure that that happened. So good job, America. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The You have the Swan Brothers who are fine. They're good singers. Um they will have some sort of a, a, a successful career, I am certain, but they sh- should not be the finalists on any show called The Voice. And um, Michelle Shamuel did a very good job. The, uh, I'm, once again, they played on the same one idea of mirrors. Uh, I really think that's been a flaw of this season and the show in general, where they find one thing that a performer does that connects with the audience, and then they do it every single time. They say, if you're going to have something like that mirror idea works really successfully, um, if you if you can pull it out every now and again, but if you go to it every week, it is diminishing returns, and people like Usher should know that. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's just like an assumption of, I don't know, unawareness from, from the audience that they don't won't get tired of the same gimmick every week, but... Uh, I don't know. I I was, and I I'm voting. I would vote for Michelle Samuel to win, but obviously I don't care enough to watch. I don't care enough to vote. And uh, Danielle actually, did, I thought she did a very good job on the first half of her performance. She was in tune. She had good style. It was a it was smart song choice. She and she did it very well in the second half of the song. I was actually impressed because she's been really out of tune every week until this week. The second half of the song had a lot, she was going sharp with it, whereas she normally goes flat. That tells me that she has been working on it, which is good, but she was still kind of out of tune. And I don't know, I, she needs more help and more work. And, and when you have coaches like Adam Levine saying, your perfection is almost boring at this point, no musician is ever perfect and no musician should ever be told, you know, should ever believe anyone who tells them that they just did a perfect, there's no such thing as a perfect live performance. There's a perfect live moment, maybe, but not a perfect live. Something can always be better. That's what well, performing and, live and, is. As a person who doesn't watch The Voice, I should just mention, I wouldn't trust Adam Levine's take on perfection. He, he's normally actually one of the more interesting and insightful coaches on the show, but the, the just the comments from the coaches... Yeah, they were very interesting and and I would say creatively valid up until we got to about the final eight or the final six. So somewhere around then they just turned into let's just constantly praise everyone. Um, I don't know why. And it's it's you know that that one of the things I appreciate about the voice is that they see you see them getting coached, you see them working on things and improving and and seeing you know a development you know, in some of the musicians, but also just seeing various things that will help these people become better singers. And at a certain point, this last season and this season, they didn't do it as much in the first season. It just became clear that 
they weren't going to say anything negative anymore because I think they were worried about hard hurting their singer's chances with America if they were honest. And that's just really a way to get me to not watch your show anymore. And when Danielle wins, I, th I think they have an over-reliance on... The, if you make the top 10 in iTunes, your votes, each, each one of those downloads counts as a vote. And if you make the top 10, not only are those votes multiplied by 10, um, but they add to your overall final tally. So if you have a top 10 song um, overnight on iTunes in week two, at the end of the show, those votes multiplied by 10 count to the, your final results to see if you win, which means that any singer who is geared towards a teen fangirl kind of audience who maybe don't have better things to spend their allowance money on than iTunes versions of songs that there are better versions of, um, they're going to get way more iTunes. They're going to get more, way more downloads. They're going to get way more votes. Those of us who don't have extra cash to just download three different songs on iTunes uh, because we have things like rent, you know, <laughs> maybe we're more discerning about which version of Whitney Houston songs we're going to like. Um, they're not going to get as many downloads. So they're not going to get as many voids, votes. So they just aren't going to win. And that is a real flaw to the show. And I don't think they recognize that. I think it's going to really hurt the longevity of the show unless they start tweaking it. But I just have been rambling about the voice for way too long because I don't care about it as much as it seems. So uh, congratulations, Danielle. I'm sure you won. If you somehow didn't, then yay, Michelle won. There's no way the swans are winning. Um, so, uh, w well done, The Voice. Uh, I still watched you, but I don't know if I will tune in very much next season. Let's talk about So You Think You Dance. Yes. Okay. Uh, this was, this was, uh, obviously Vegas week pre the Green Mile. How happy were you that it was all in one episode? I was happy that it was all in one episode, but it was a little bit much in general um it's 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 hard for me to get through two hours of any reality show uh even a relatively decent competition one like this a lot of it just felt really arbitrary to me like for instance the whole we're gonna have an animator perform again so that we'll see if he can stay on oh we're gonna do it again except it's gonna be a duel but then it won't matter because we're just gonna take them both anyway it just there was something odd about that and a little bit off um also i thought the treatment of armin was really strange uh, for instance, they rightly chastise him quite a lot for dropping his partner. Uh, but then after that, he was exemplary in every possible way, but it didn't matter. So if they were going to kick him off for it anyway, why did they keep him around? Yeah, I think there's a problem with the editing there. I think they also needed to emphasize that it wasn't, it was obviously that he dropped his partner. Yes, but they were also talking a lot about his attitude. And while, and he ditched his partner and didn't practice which is attitude. But I'm sure if if that was that recurring of a thing with the comments from the judges, there must have been other stuff that we just didn't see. Because other than that, his attitude seemed really, I mean, he seemed quite humbled by the whole thing. Yeah, I think he, he seemed very concerned that he had dropped his partner and and very contrite, you know, and I, and I think it's very important that they stress health and safety for these dancers. I mean, it's, it takes so much trust to just do some of these things that the, these dancers do with the partnering to just, I'm going to literally throw myself across the room and trust that you will catch me and I won't go to the hospital. The way that she was dropped, she, she hits her head the wrong way. She's paralyzed. So yeah. I, I thought it was important that they stress that. But when they're talking about his attitude, we needed to see more examples of it because it didn't really, didn't really follow. Although, can I just mention, it's a little bit weird 
to be so concerned about everyone's health and safety and when then, you're deliberately yeah. because you're deliberately putting them in a position where they're on no sleep doing insanely difficult routines for hours and hours at a time and you know you're kind of hoping actually that something like this happens i don't know though i was a little bit unsettled by that whole thing well and i i thought that the way that they structured the uh the 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 different rounds as it were i guess I was underwhelmed because um, parts of it were really interesting and I, I enjoy Sonia Taya, so I liked her, her routine. But when you follow, it's like, this this dance is so hard, this routine is so hard, you guys are not ready to do it. So you're going to, so if you want, you have until the next morning. So make sure that you have it learned for the next morning, and which means that all of them are going to stay up all night. And then you give them an hour to learn the ballroom routine. Shouldn't the ballroom like competition be just as difficult as the jazz so that means that you're just saying either that ballroom doesn't matter it's not as hard it's not as meaningful or that you just gave them a really easy ballroom routine to do and they don't so therefore they don't need the extra time you know i, I thought the way that they really emphasize and it's a problem on the show in general but the way they really emphasize certain types of, of dance over others can be frustrating Yes. Uh, I will say that, honestly, the most lasting effect of the Sonya routine was uh, they kept playing that Disclosure song over and over, which I actually really dug. So now it's it's going to be in my head now for weeks and weeks. Nice. Now, do you have any uh, do you have any favorites after after this week? Which I was surprised that not Jennifer Beals got eliminated. I was expecting to see her in the top 20. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. What, I don't remember her name now, but I didn't see the uh, I didn't see the um, tra- trapeze artist anywhere. The I don't know. There are too many. I mean, even now, heading into next week, aren't there still like forty four dancers or something? There are thirty three, and and I thought we started out with two hundred. Apparently, they started out with like one hundred and fifty. Yeah, there's there was some dodgy math in there. Um, so, I don't know. There's still too many. I mean, the uh, the animators are both great. The two that they got to face off. Yeah. I I still think there was something weird about the way they kept singling them out. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of put it, it placed them in a sort of other category, I think, unnecessarily in a way that kind of put me off. But um, I don't know. This is the thing with these marathon episodes is I can. It's very difficult for me to to pick out individuals because I don't. I just don't have that kind of attention span. Well, I think also something like um, like there was that one person who apparently did a terrible job partnering. Was that was that Jade? I don't know. One of the the yeah. guys. And because I am not as knowledgeable about dance. I don't know why he was a bad part. Just watching it, I thought it seemed to me like he did a good job, but obviously all the entire table was like, no, that was bad. And I don't, I don't know enough about it. So they need to, I don't know, even just, you know, in the auditions, they show like a clip back and while they're explaining so we can see, I don't know if they needed to like <laughs> madden this thing up and circle things, you know, so that we can, that would be cool. That would be cool. Um, I would like to know why they're saying various things. I'd like to be learning a little bit more about this so I can understand it better and therefore appreciate the people who are doing it well, even more. The uh, last thing I want to mention is I like how they made it incredibly obvious that one of the, uh, one of the people, was going home when we saw him go for a smoke break. I was like, nope, <laughs> there's no way you're surviving if you're going for a smoke break. Yeah, certain. certain Even though, that's... honestly, probably half of them smoke. Well, um, and and uh, certain certain of the the dancers are just so clearly in the top twenty. Like blonde pixie girl, definitely in the yes. top twenty. Fiction, who did a killer solo, by the yes. way, top twenty. I thought it was interesting which dancers, when they had to do their solo, did the same solo from auditions, and which ones did different ones. I don't know why you would use the same 
solo for the next round but unless you just didn't have time to create a new routine because you were up all night doing something else well except that these these auditions happened months apart so maybe the most recent audition was closer to vegas the others had two to three months to learn a new routine i don't know but um i did think it was really fun watching people like twitch get to see these really awesome animators or, or hip-hop uh guys who they hadn't been able to see because obviously the the auditions hadn't aired and they weren't there for the auditions. So it was fun to kind of recapture some of that, oh my God, this person's amazing, that we were experiencing in the audition process. Yes. But uh, I guess we'll we'll keep our eyes peeled for, for this week or tonight, actually. We have the green mile, so we're going to go from 33 to the top 20. I don't really know how that process works. I don't remember from last year, and I tried to look it up online and couldn't find any information. So uh, we'll see. We'll see who our top 20 is. I'm pretty sure there's Michael Clark Duncan in an electric chair involved. Something like that. Uh, let's take a break and come back and talk drama. Okay. It's dark. Fish eye lens. You're the baby. Just wah, wah. You do that. Wah, wah, wah. Okay. <laughs> so there's a crowd. Eight or nine people. It's the whole coven. And there's a crazy little old lady. What you need is a mustard plaster. And then there's this wrinkled old man. You need a compress. And then a Jewish neighbor lady. How about a bowl of chicken soup? Anyway, there's one more of those, maybe. Then they all start crowding in on you. And the Japanese takes a picture. And the flash turns it white. Then you see the beautiful, radiant young mother. You don't need anyone's help but St. Joseph's. Usually with things like this, it depends on you knowing the movie. But I think this works on its own. I told you it was good. That's a lot of people. You need to feel the conspiracy. You want me to come to casting? Sure. But I'm just going to watch. It was all her. This week in drama, we have, uh, I'll preview the Crossing Lines pilot for NBC. Then we have the True Blood premiere, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, <laughs> Hannibal Releve, and uh, Mad Men, The Quality of Mercy. So first, the Crossing Lines pilot. The This is a two-part premiere. Until this past week, they they only had the first part up. So I actually haven't had a chance to see the second part of the premiere. But the first part of the premiere, it, you know, it's, it's really great to see William Fitchner on my television as the lead of a drama. We talk about every now and again on the DVD shelf when we do some of these older shows. It's just so amazing to see people who look like normal people and not like starlets in the leads for, for these various shows. So it's nice to see someone who actually looks like he's more likely to be a grizzled cop playing a grizzled cop. And I, I enjoy him as a performer. So this is like an international kind of interpol team of, of investigators that are chasing after Serial killer. Yay. Yet yeah. another serial killer show. Um, but I did enjoy this one more than I expected. I think as far as disposable summer viewing goes, it's it's better than Do No Harm, which is starting back up soon. <laughs> Are you serious? Or, or Zero Hour. They're burning off their episodes. Apparently, right, yes. 666 Park Avenue will be burning off the rest of its episodes coming up here soon as well. So I guess I would recommend that more. I the It does feel a little like trying to cash in on some of these like justice league or avengers kind of everybody's really good at one thing ideas it, it, that was a little on the nose but i I do think fitchner is compelling as the lead so a mild thumbs up if you like crime procedurals and if that doesn't interest you then just skip it you're not missing a lot them diagonal up diagonal sideways halfway non-committal 
something like that. Um, I I did finish the first half of the premiere, got to the end, went, well, I'm mildly, mildly curious how that you know cliffhanger is going to be resolved. Let's watch the next one. Oh, they don't have it up. Oh, well then. <laughs> and that was oh, several weeks see. ago, and I did do not did not feel as compelled. I was my, again mildly curious to see what happened, but I did I didn't have the time this week, so. I don't feel particularly at a loss for not having seen how that cliffhanger resolves. But anyways, that's that's crossing lines. We also had the premiere this week of True Blood. Don't let me be misunderstood. Oh, Billis. <sighs> New showrunner now, right? It's New no showrunner. Yes, but for he, he made it about half the season and then got fired. That's interesting. I because it's funny because I, I was just about to say I wouldn't have guessed there was a new showrunner based on this episode, and I guess there wasn't because uh, this just feels like it's picking up right. I mean, literally where last season left off, which it does, but it also does in every other sense too. Uh, if if anything else, it's just even more of a hot mess. And yeah, I mean, half of these plot lines are just useless. Yeah, we were talking about it the other day, and it's astonishing to me how True Blood went so quickly. From a show where anyone could die to a show where nobody dies, the, some of the, the the character deaths that they had early in the run were so significant and and powerful and meaningful. And now they really, as much as I do like most of these actors and most of these characters at various points, they need to cull half their cast. It's time, at least. Yeah, it's time, or just don't have them on the show. I I love Carrie Preston. I don't need to see the bell floors. Have them pop up for like five minutes every third week, and that's good. Yeah, give her time for a good wife spinoff. Yeah, this is, a, and this is something else we're talking about. This is a ridiculously deep bench. There are a lot of really good actors on this show, but in, in something like Joe Manganiello, hilarious, really fun actor. I've enjoyed his other work that I've seen. He's He does his best with a character like Alcide. Why the hell are we still following that wolf pack? I don't care about them as much as I like Joe Magnello, and that just all comes down to the writing. I mean, you're following him because, let me look at him, but that's the that's literally the only reason. That's you're literally him. the only reason. That's the only reason, uh, and it's just yeah, you, watching them strain like to bend over backwards to give characters something to do. I mean, look at where uh, Jessica is in the episode. The only reason that what's happening to her isn't happening to say Sookie, as far as I can tell, is because she needed something to do. Yeah. Like, there's no compelling reason that I can think of for it to be her. But, yeah, I don't know. And then they throw in Rutger Hauer because they're not done. Just wasting everyone else's time isn't enough. They have to throw in one of my favorite actors of all time. And uh, they give him this to do. Why? Yeah. Okay. Uh... You are allowed to keep five characters on this show. What is Simon's true blood? Who is left in Simon's true blood? Uh, keep uh keep Tara keep uh so- wait you have to keep Suki obviously um well, I almost feel like wow well, come on she's the lead and she's Anna Paquin she's again one of the best actors of her generation and just seems totally bored and disengaged here but whatever uh keep um keep uh Alexander Skarsgård um do I have the right Skarsgård I always get yeah, confused that's our side. yes <laughs> Skarsgård Skarsgård there's too many um keep uh i you know deborah ann wall can keep it can keep having a job sure and uh keep uh i don't know take your pick for number five but you keep those four and i guess of and and uh i don't know villain of your choice i don't i don't really care and then kill everyone else yeah uh let's see i would keep but even but even tara 
even even Tara, like I don't know who she is anymore. Even just based on last season, like she just seems like a totally different character all of a sudden. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I want to like Pam. Normally, Pam would be like my go-to. Definitely keep that character, but they've turned her into such a weak person. She doesn't necessarily like. She's just kind of moping around after Eric all the time, which doesn't. You know, I understand very long bond there, significant. Yeah, yada yada yada. I don't really care. I don't. I want to like Pam, and I don't really at this point. Yeah, and I want to like Jason, but he's one of the most irritating characters now. The writing has been terrible. Well, and Ryan Quantin can be such a, a wonderful source of comedy for them, and he has been in the past. But, but no, I it's just just horrible, horrible writing for that character. Yeah. And and Chris Bauer too. I mean, yes. every every time we cut back to him and his fairy baby, this is like. Oh, remember when you were on The Wire? You were so good. Okay, I'm going to keep Sookie. I'm going to keep Eric. Because I think Sookie has potential there, and if they get rid of Bill, that can help her not be as annoying. Um, I'm going to keep... Oh, man. Because I, I like Eric, which means I can't really keep Pam, because Pam... Is, I feel like it's Eric or Pam because of how they're writing her right now. I'm going to keep Lafayette. I think there's potential there. Uh, enjoy that character. Um, yeah, Lafayette can be my number five. I'm gonna keep. <laughs> like, who else do you really? Need? I'm really I'm <laughs> pondering here because there are other people that I would like to keep, but they're not on the same show. Like, I would like to keep Jason, and I'd like to have them fix Jason. But I don't know yeah, if they exactly. can do that. <laughs> and then, and I will also keep uh, Jessica Debran Roll because I think she's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just killed off and Pam just... and Tara. Even though I do and like the other characters. thirty characters, like you know, Eric's stupid sister. Yeah, Nora this... needs to be gone. Ugh. I'll see. The fact that she survived gone. last season is just incredibly egregious. Yeah, Mer- uh, Sam gone, gone so long ago. Yep. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. So this. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that whatever the show when. I'm curious. I might actually not even check in again until new showrunners <laughs> era starts, and he just hopefully kills everybody or she. Or she. Yeah. I don't actually know who it is. I but, don't um, but no, that is, it, it was ridiculous kind of looking at this cast going, I don't want to see Carrie Preston right now. I don't want to see Chris Bauer right now. I don't want to see Joe Manganiello. I don't want to see these characters. I don't characters. want to see Ryan Quantin. Yeah. yeah. That is not good. Shame writers. Bad writers. I should want yeah. to see these these actors. And seriously, anyone who's watching True Blood looking at Anna Paquin going, I hate you, go to Netflix, go rent Margaret. She's an incredible actress. And she's just there. She's yeah. just there. She's yeah. just it's just a paycheck at this point. Or it feels like it anyway. <sighs> let's uh let's move on to Hannibal. Uh Relevé. Did I say that right? Nah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, that's fine. I'm going with it. I'm going with my bad high school French class French. Um which is the pièce de résistance, the main course. That's what that's supposed to be. This is the second to last episode. I very much enjoyed it more. I, I liked the way they brought back Ellen, Ellen Muth. I thought uh, Jillian Anderson was great in this episode, and I look forward to discussing the finale with you. <laughs> right, because you've already seen it. Uh, the cold open to this episode was uh, so hard to watch, uh, in a good way. It was just, oh, that was poor Ellen Muth. Poor, poor Ellen Muth. Um, the, I was, it was an interesting week for Hannibal because I, I was reading up on some earlier published, uh, interviews with Mickelson and Fuller and 
it was interesting to read up on Mickelson's take on his version of Hannibal, and he sees him as basically Lucifer, uh, which actually I think colors the whole show in a good way for me because it allows me to think about his performance through that. And the idea of him as this like elemental evil, who's not even living in the same world as everyone else, I think is, is really interesting. And it's more interesting to me than just rich perverted guy, basically. Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's a a good angle to take. And I think he does a fantastic job with it. I mean, it's sort of hard to judge this episode on its own because it feels like the first part of a two part finale, uh, which actually makes the um, title a little bit weird, but I'm assuming that I've heard nothing but good things about the finale from people who've heard it, including you. So I, uh, I have no reason to doubt that it's heading in an interesting direction. Yeah. The, um, yeah, we'll talk about that next week. But I, I did think uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to mention. First of all, in reading some of those interviews, I thought it was awesome. To, I, was, I was like, oh, of course, when I found out that Jose Andres has been assisting on, on Hannibal. Of course, he's a spectacular Spanish chef. And uh, one of, he's one of those chefs where I go, oh, I've heard of him. I've seen him on <laughs> Top Chef Masters, and he's amazing. Um, and, and so that, that sort of explained, that really helped explain part of how they've just completely nailed the food on this show and just the treatment that element of Hannibal's character, but also just like the naming of each of these episodes as a course and a meal. It's been really fun, that element of it. And it's good to see Brian Fuller calling in the, the, uh, the big guns for these various elements to the show. Also, I yeah. wanted to specifically mention, I loved the text mocking Jack when he's like, okay, so what could this mean to like, Oh, Oh, fabricate evidence. You mean just uh, randomly guess that's how science works. Uh, I love yes, that. yes. I, uh, I I loved everything with Scott Thompson and uh, guy from Slings and Arrows uh, and their uh, their repartee. I, the show needs more of that. Frankly, it could use more humor more often for obvious reasons. Well, and when basically the one tech who is more willing to do that, okay, where's where's the tech who will help me out with this? And like, oh, she's in court. Nerds. Yes. <laughs> it was good. It was fun. So uh, yeah, I, I don't have any more. Do you want to talk about Jillian Anderson at all? Well, I just I like how um, it's 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 really interesting to juxtapose this role here with her role on the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, also interesting that she's so uh, she's so poised, she's so intelligent, and yet she's so wrong. <laughs> it's I, I, that's such a that's not a uh, that's not really a set of character beats you get to have in the same person all that often. Uh, so it's it's been interesting to watch her play that. Oh, one other thing I just remembered: uh, memory dream. Georgia, hallucination Georgia, was creepy, and I loved the way that they used uh, that, that sort of, uh, I love that Georgia helped Will figure it out, and, uh, you know, like, kind of piecing together the the copycat element, I thought that was really cool, and um, just the visuals of that. Yeah, that stop stutter motion. Uh, yeah. The they they keep finding new ways to be creepy, which I'm really enjoying. They're not, with the exception of the um, of the will sort of uh, his scene reconstruction. This is my design thing, which they've gone back to I think too many times, mm-hmm. and I think they should mix that up next season. Other than that, they've they've done a really good job of keeping it fresh every week in terms of ways to creep you out and. I'm just, I'm thinking if the show keeps getting renewed by season four, how are they going to be killing people? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's just going to get to like, it's going to be the molecular uh, gastronomy of murder at some point. 
Well, I look forward to a possibility where of them running out of ways to kill people in season four, because that means that we will have gotten to season four. Um, so I'm just ex- excited we have a season two to talk about and more on that next week. So uh, let's move on to Mad Men, The Quality of Mercy. Um, let's see what stands out f- for for this week. Shall we start with Sally? Yeah, we can start with Sally. Um, I I like the stuff with Sally. Those girls in that dorm room were some of the scariest people <laughs> I've seen on television in a long time. When they when they flip that switch and they just become, why is she still talking? That creeped me the hell out. I don't know if that was just me. That was some Children of the Corn tip right there. Yeah, they were like, like you said last week with with Sally's friend. They were just perfect little bitches and. Uh, and I, w- I was a, a little disheartened by how quickly Sa- uh, Sally joined their ranks, as it were. Um, but I and I was surprised to be so be so glad to see Glenn pop back up. Yeah, yeah, Glenn was great. I I I, I like how we check in with him every once in a while, and the, I like that he's still played by Weiner's son. And I I, I like the his little uh, his accumulation of buttons. I thought was a nice touch, <laughs> and mm-hmm. perfect for the character. And I I like that. I was so glad that he actually turned out to not be an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least seemingly not be an asshole. I mean, the show's got lots of time to still make him an asshole. Hmm. And clearly that's what they like doing with everyone else. Uh, and I, I, I liked both the entering and leaving scenes with Sally and Betty. And the, I, her reaction when Sally just totally dismisses Dawn, I thought was really nicely played. And I think also this season's been the best for January Jones in general. I think she's been great the whole season. I know that her performance has been a sticking point for people, but I think she's been fantastic. Yeah, there's lots of good um, Sally Betty stuff this week. Definitely enjoyed her, and I enjoy this type of rapport between between Betty and Don. I would like I would be very happy if this was the kind of you know grudging, functional, not necessarily overly warm, but still they're they're co-parenting, you know, kind of relationship. To some degree, yeah, yeah, between yeah, they're, those they're two. not undercutting each other to the same degree anymore. Yeah, definitely. Um, so next, what, Bob? Yeah, we have to talk about Bob Benson. And I, it's Can almost... I just say, Tom and Lorenzo, I loved their write-up this week. Did you read it? I did not. Oh, you have to read it. It's amazing. Uh, from from last week, sorry, talking about their, their theory of Bob Benson, which was pretty much on the money. A little, you know, not quite right because of some of the information we found out this week. But uh, but it was an excellent write-up of, of that character. So everybody, TomLorenzo.com, check out their review of last week's episode and then, of course, this week's as well. I mean, the interesting thing in this episode isn't so much what we learn about Bob, which is pretty much the kind of thing that people have been figuring all along, which is that he's effectively a con man. He's effectively right. Don Draper. He's, yeah, but that gay. also. Uh, but gay, or at least par- somewhat gay, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think the more interesting thing was Pete's reaction and that whole scene. And I loved reading other people trying to sort out just what exactly was going on in that scene <laughs> uh it, it, to me it, it, it seemed pretty clear you know pete's been here before he has note essentially his reaction seemed to me if you can't beat him join him and you know he's 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 acknowledged that this is just not a, a battle he wants to get into again and i, I liked m- even more than pete's reaction i loved james Wilkes' reaction to that scene of just utter befuddlement of yeah. he's so ready to leave he's like i, I can be out tomorrow like he's been here before, but he's just what he has no sense of the history and he shouldn't. And mm-hmm. I thought the whole scene was just beautifully written and performed. Well, and uh, I, I think James Wilk 
obviously, I, I finally watched the Lone Star pilot for Pilot Week. That it's good, right? Pilot Month. It's very good. He's very good. Of course, we also enjoyed him on Happy Endings as the most stable relationship Max ever had on that show. Um, and uh, he's been really good here all season. And um, just what I think he's also been so wonderfully written. And I love how all season everybody was freaking out about how we didn't know anything about Bob Benson. Of course, it's an active, very you know conscious plot point in this episode. And I thought it was just so such a wonderful payoff to what that character's been all season. I was just watching in befuddlement with Pete when he, you know, decides that he's going to be cool as it were, <laughs> you know, and mostly I think so that he can, cause obviously everybody there loves Bob and that this way he has some, some uh, hold over him if he wants to play that card down the line. And uh, if, if, if not, he has an ally who is incredibly popular at their firm. Yes. So, unlike Pete. Yeah. Unlike, unlike Pete. <laughs> and you know, uh, I, I saw someone else reproduce this quote and I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm, it's not verbatim, but in the very first episode of Mad Men in the pilot, uh, Don and Pete are already having some sort of conflict. And Don says to him something like, you're going to end up in, in, in mid-level management as the guy with thinning hair in a corner office. And, and that's because nobody likes you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting to see how much that's, that's not, you know, that's not exactly been perfect prophecy, but it's been fairly accurate in some respects. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would, I'd be curious to know, uh, you know, especially when the series is over, just how much uh, Weiner had planned out in advance. Although frankly, a lot of this season does seem like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm not like as great as the Bob Benson thing has been a, a lot about this season has felt placeholder -y to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of stalling for time ahead of the last season, which should be next season. Uh, so I don't know. It, I still, I still think it hasn't been nearly as good as last season, but I did think it was a pretty good episode much as it did also remind me that Don is still the least interesting character on the show. By far the least interesting character on the show. But this week, my particular, uh, really, Really has to go to Peggy. Oh God! I thought she had learned at this point not to be chasing after Ted, who is also obviously all Sweeney for her. What was the point of of them establishing that Ted and Don are basically the same guy? Um, a few weeks back, if they're gonna ha in in their relationship and how they treat Peggy, if they were gonna have it go right back to this point. I mean, I guess they love the notion of people not changing and making the same mistakes over and over again, but I get really tired of that. I'm not sure that Ted and Don are as similar as you think they are, though. I mean, I think that in their interactions with and possessiveness over Peggy, uh, I don't. Again, like I don't know. For instance, the way that Ted bends over backwards to try to accommodate her plan this week I, I can't see don ever doing that i mean it was a mistake clearly but it's not the kind of reaction i can see don having see i think for don peggy is is his daughter and for for ted it's his girlfriend um but i still think it's very strong i mean they they it feels at a certain point uh, ted is in la la land more but it, it feels like a certain point they're just kind of peeing on her leg <laughs> i own peggy no i own peggy and i, I want peggy to just Get rid of both of them. And and check up with what's his name? <laughs> with, well, if she's going to check up with someone, at least, you know, she seems to have a functional equal relationship with Stan. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I Although we haven't even mentioned clearly the, the highlight of the episode, maybe, which was the whole Rosemary's Baby pitch scene, which was so <laughs> awesomely strange. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, although it it although it also reminded me that Joan has not had nearly enough to do this season. No, I was just so glad to see her knowing glances through that. Just like seriously, guys, uh, to to Don was were hilarious, and yeah, they need to give Christina H- Hendricks more to do. I mean, obviously, this is an embarrassment of riches this cast, but I you know Joan is one of my favorite characters, and rather than watching Don be an asshole yet again every week, I would much rather find out what's going on with Avon and Joan. Yeah. Um, remind me of the name of the character they shot in the face. Kenny. I was very yes. concerned for Kenny. Yes. Isn't it? And remind me, has Kenny ever been established to be a dick or is he now like officially the only nice guy in the office? Yeah. I'm pretty sure Kenny's the only nice guy in the office. They've, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's the writer. He's the person who would not be doing this job, but he needs the money and has now a family to support. I was very concerned for him. I watched this a little later than, you know, Twitter. And so I, I, I didn't get spoiled because you guys are awesome. Uh, the people that I follow on Twitter, but um, there was lots of, you know, I had some dread after that first scene with Kenny. I was like, no, they can't kill the only good guy. Well, and if they killed a character named Kenny, they would have never, ever, ever heard the end of it. <laughs> certainly, certainly. But um, I don't know. Any, we're getting towards the end here. Any final hopes for the the rest of the season? Yeah, the finale is next week. I think there needs to be. I mean, Mad Men is one of those shows that alternates between having momentous finales and having momentous penultimate episodes or not having anything momentous at all. Uh, so it's, there's no real established pattern. I think my favorite finale is still the season three finale, I think, which uh, is actually the, the formation of SCDP, if I recall correctly. And uh, it would be nice to have a finale that had as much optimism as that one did. I don't see it happening. Uh, I, I, I would love some serious, serious change. Uh, at least being set in motion, if not actually enacted, because clearly, especially with the Don Megan marriage, something's got to give, and preferably sooner. Yeah, I, I at this point, I'm certain the show's not going to change and do anything interesting with Don. At this point, it's going to take a lot for me to care about anything Don related. Um, so, as for as for the finale, just you know getting away from the constant theme of nobody changes and he's just going to keep drinking himself into oblivion would be good. So any, you know, focus on the characters I care more about, um, make up their mind what they're going to do with Peggy and Ted and just have some forward motion with that. Uh, These are the the various things I'm hoping for, but mostly last year, Mad Men was, I think my number, my number one or number two show of the year at the end of the year this year. I don't know that it's, I don't even know that it's on my top 10 for the first half of the year. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a bit of a precipitous drop, which is too bad. I mean, it's still a very good show for mm-hmm. all the reasons that everyone already already knows that it is. But I think it's just, I think this would have been a, I think where they ended it last season would have been a great position for it to end this year. And I think maybe they went a year too long and it, and again, a lot of these plot points feel like filling time for that to happen. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens uh, with the finale. What wins the week for you for drama? Um, and after all that bitching, I think I have to give it to Men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll still, I'll give it to to Hannibal. I think though it was a very good episode of, of Mad Men this week, one of the best of the season, I would say. Um, but I still I'm really digging Hannibal. So we'll and again 
more about that next week to continue being frustrating. Let's uh, yep. a few a few show notes here before we go to our DVD shelf with Todd Vanderwerf of the AV Club. Our intro and outro music is "Sweet Petite" by the Bicycles. We will we'll have a post up at Sound on Site about this episode. You can leave us a comment comment there. Let us know what you thought of the the week's television and what your highlights were. Of course, we can also be reached via email, theteleverse at gmail dot com, and on Facebook, you can like us and follow what. You know, the various reviews that are going up at Sound on Site TV, as well as vote in the Make Kate Watch Stuff poll. This week, I believe the, the contenders are going to include uh, Zero Hour and, uh, uh, what is it, Royal Pains. Now, one of the necessary roughness, I don't know, there's a USA show that's premiering that'll be on, on the voting Zero Hour and some of the other, some other others as well. So lots of good contenders. Let Make your voice heard. You can also, of course, vote at Sound on Site TV. Uh, org slash TV. For those of you who hate the Facebook, we will have a, a poll up there as well. Um, you can also reach us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. You are at Sucker Howell. And then, of course, we also have uh, an, a feed up in, in iTunes. We have an MP3 unchaptered feed and an M4A chaptered feed. And we'd very much appreciate any ratings or reviews you could give us there. It's been a while since we had a, a new one, and we would very much appreciate it. It does help other people find the show. What should our question of the week be? Well, uh, Hannibal. Mad Men, both ending next week. So I, there's got to be a decent segment of the podcast listening population listening to both of those shows. They're two of the best dramas going right now, if not the two best. So uh, what are people hoping for out of the finale? Personally, for Hannibal, I'm hoping for... Um, I would. I think it would be kind of awesome if it ended with Hannibal in handcuffs. I don't think they're going to get there yet. It would be great, because we all know it's coming, considering, but, you know. That's what I'm ho- I'm hoping for more motion than we're expecting, basically. Okay, cool. Let us know what you think. <laughs> you I will... already know, so you damn you. Yes, I I will uh, do my best to remain enigmatic on this on the subject all week, but good stuff is coming for us. So, anyways, let's take a break, listen to a clip and some music, and come back with Todd Vanderwerf of the AV Club to talk slings and arrows. Jeffrey. Oh no. Welcome home. Here you are, back at the swamp. It's about time. This is where you earned your stripes. Romeo, Mark Antony, Prince Hal, and the other prince. Dare I speak his name? What is happening here? You're dead. Apparently, there's an afterlife, <laughs> despite what they taught us in university. Now, you answer me a question. What's all this nonsense about you not being mentally equipped to take on Hamlet? I mean, I know you're crazy, but... Please, but I thought that's why you'd returned. To take up my mantle. To snatch the festival from apathy's yawning maw. Oliver! Or am I wrong? Was it love's siren song that brought you crashing on these rocks? I don't know why I'm here. I hate this fucking place. And I don't blame you. Drove you mad, didn't it? And it killed me. Revenge my foul and most unnatural murder. Stop it! Excuse me, Jeffrey, are you available to do a press thing with Basil at five? Yeah. Do you, do you need some more time? I mean... No, it's fine. Okay, we'll do it in the bar. Good. Cheer up, Hamlet. Chin up, Hamlet. Buck up, you melancholy dine. So your uncle is a cad who murdered dad and married mum. That's really no excuse to be as bluff as you so, so wise up, Hamlet, rise up, Hamlet, park up and sing the new refrain. 
This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week at the DVD shelf, we are brushing up our Shakespeare with slings and arrows. And here to help us talk about the series is Todd Venderwerf, the TV editor for the Onion AV Club. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. So what made you want to talk about slings and arrows? Um, it's it's probably one of my two or three favorite shows ever made. Um, I just This is a show that I can return to time and time again and get something more out of it. And also... It just makes me feel good the more I watch it. You know, even when awful things happen in the world of slings and arrows, it's it's somehow tinged with the sense that life will go on, that everything will be okay, that things will get better, that, you know, these people care about each other on some level. It's it's just a beautiful little show, and um, it, it does stuff I've never seen any other TV show do. Yeah, this was a, such a wonderful discovery for me. Of course, that's the beautiful thing about the DVD shelf, is that I get to hear about all these shows that, uh, or I get to catch up with these shows that maybe I've heard of, maybe I haven't, but uh, there, there's a lovely level of quality control, because, you know, the guests always pick. And um, this is one I'd heard about sort of peripherally for the past few years, but never had the time to sit down and, and, and really... To, to really dive into it. Yeah, I, I really enjoy Shakespeare. And, um, and, and, you know, as a musician, I, I have been around my share of theater people. Um, and sure. so <laughs> there, you know, this really was right up my alley. I, I very much enjoy the format, which is, you know, three series, six episodes each, hour long episodes, but it's basically an hour long comedy, which I very much enjoyed. And, I, nobody seems to really do that very much in, in the States, so it made it feel even more Canadian. And then when you add in such inventive and entertaining scripts and then also just sort of this who's who of Canadian actors I enjoy, it really, right. I was very pleased to add this to my list of shows that now I can trumpet for other people to watch. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to have introduced it to you. Um, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's just very well constructed. You mentioned the, the short seasons, and I think that they do a very good job of introducing a whole bunch of stuff every season and then tying it all off in the end. Like usually around episode three or four of each season, I think they probably have introduced like five too many plot elements. But then everything gets resolved in episode six and resolved beautifully. And uh, I, I did an interview with the creators for the AV Club where they where they basically talked about how much they used Shakespeare as an influence in his construction of his plays. And that that I think really shows in the way that they have such complicated, intricate plots that are so character driven and then come together into emotionally cathartic moments in episode six. Definitely. Simon, what was your relationship with this show? Huh. Well, it's not news that I'm Canadian, and uh, that means that growing up, I uh, was subjected to a lot of terrible English-Canadian television, and also I grew up around theater people and was one of them for a little <laughs> while, uh, so instantly I have all sorts of reasons to distru- to distrust the show, I, and also Paul Gross, um, I, you know, if you're a Canadian, you'll know that he's responsible or around for quite a lot of mediocrity, especially over the last few years, some of which he's responsible. Yeah, some of which he's responsible for, some of which he isn't. And so I, I had all sorts of reasons to be distrustful, but it actually ended up being a, a really incredible surprise. And I, I think when we talk about, um, you know, how the, the short seasons and the structuring and how it all comes together in the end, the word that just keeps coming to mind is discipline. 
and just the the construction is so weirdly meticulous and you don't see it at first and i think you 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 kind of hinted at this todd like you you really see at the end just how everything comes together not 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 once not twice but three times and the seasons just get i think successively better uh which is quite a trick even for a short series and um the the entire cast is incredible and i mean you're right Kate, it is a, a who's who of Canadian actors, and I even said to you when season three started, "Jesus, the only people we're missing are Maury Chaykin and Sarah Polly." And then Sarah Polly turned up, and I had no <laughs> idea, and it was fantastic. And unfortunately, Chaykin was tied up in some really garbage roles on other TV shows, which is too bad because I think he would have fit right in. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the structure of each season, there, I think there's also a larger structure to the whole series, which is you have Hamlet. So youth, and then you have Macbeth, middle age, and then you have King Lear, old age. And so it, it it just is such a very cleanly constructed series. There's within each season and even some of the episodes, you have smaller arcs. But then if you look at the, the whole thing as a piece, it really does function very well as one long story from the very beginning to the end. And I love the, the way that it ends where it's not about new Burbage it's not about that it's about these characters and it's about maybe the plays the plays the thing of course and and so to to see where it starts off you know and then the journey of each of these characters and then finally where it ends it's just incredibly satisfying well and, and I think another way to think about how incredibly well the show is executed and constructed is think about other shows that are set in the theater world Let's let's think about Smash for a moment, and I will. I promise this won't be long. I'm sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> like for instance, think about a character like Ellis on Smash, and just how awful and one note and useless and purely plot devicey that character was. And then think about Slings and Arrows, on which even the characters that don't get to leave much of an impression via screen time, they all feel like they have inner lives, and that's a function of fantastic writing and fantastic acting. I, I love, especially if you look at season three in East Lansing and compare that storyline with, with something like Smash. I, you don't need an Ellis character because there's plenty of drama, realistic, truthful drama without it. I will take a Darren Nichols over an Ellis <laughs> every day of the week. Absolutely. Because the great thing about Darren is, and you know, Don McKellar is predict, you know, predictably awesome in the role, is that yes, he's a buffoon. Yes, he's clearly uh, you know a foil for uh, for Paul Gross to play off of, but he also feels identifiably like potentially a real person and someone if you've you know worked in theater before you've potentially met before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I I come out of you know I did I did college theater, which is not like professional theater, but I I did do that, and this is they just get so many of the character types right. They just get so many of the. Uh, the people who live in this world just so accurate. Um, like I think um, when I did the reviews of the whole series for the AV Club, uh, there was sort of this consternation over the character of Ellen, who's the female lead. Uh, but she is absolutely a person you meet in that world, that person who is so dedicated mm-hmm. to living her life up on stage that she's not entirely sure how to live her life off stage. And uh, that she's just wonderfully realized, and, and you see that arc progress through the 18 episodes, how she gradually becomes someone who's better at better at being a full human being and not just, you know, a human being up on stage. Well, and I, 
I enjoy that she is, at least for me, I, I was very surprised actually to, to read some of the reactions to this character that I was seeing online. People not liking her. She's um, so difficult and such a diva because I think she's incredibly likable and relatable in the, in the uh, especially even just, just right away in season one because you do see that bond between mm -hmm. Ellen and Oliver and Jeffrey. You get a really strong sense of the strength of that relationship or maybe what it used to be. Yes. And and it's so easy for that diva character or that person who's so in the, their art to, to not be relatable or to not feel like a real person uh, th that I was particularly impressed with that. I didn't even really think of her as the, the irresponsible, um, you know, diva character because I just thought of her as Ellen. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, you know, the, the central trio of Ellen and Jeffrey and Oliver. Oliver, I, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but Oliver is a ghost. Um, <laughs> we haven't. Which is one of the, one of the wonderful things about this series is that it's just slightly, just slightly like five degrees to the left of reality. And that allows them to get away with a lot of stuff that like a more realistic drama would not be able to. Um, and, uh, but the central trio of these three characters are all so well realized and their relationship 18 episodes is not a lot of time to build relationships as complicated as this show does, but Slings and Arrows just sort of trusts on faith that you're going to understand all of the backstory that gets dropped in little half-sentence mentions here and there, and you do get a feel for these people and everything they've lost by not working together for the, I think, seven years they haven't worked together when the show begins, and everything they gain from coming back together, even though one is a ghost, um, over the course <laughs> over the course of the three seasons. Well, and I think, just to be clear, yes, he's a ghost, but it's left somewhat ambiguous for a while as to whether or not he's a hallucination or a ghost. And then quite bravely, you know, late, late in the run, they make it pretty clear. Yeah, he's a ghost. Well, I, th they, uh, I, in my interview with, with the creators, they said that they wanted to maintain ambiguity, but yes, I, I think that that season three sort of, sort of indicates that yes, he is indeed visiting from the great beyond. Well, and it's just so wonderful to have a central character who has these long drawn out conversations with a ghost who no one else can see. And especially somebody like Alan and, and you know, some of these other characters who become aware of, of this at a certain point, they just accept it. It's like, okay, are you going to talk to Oliver about this? And there's from maybe from certain people, there would be a judgment there, but for, from somebody like Alan, there isn't, it's just, this is just a part of who Jeffrey is now. And that's, that's fine. And I just, it feels so truthful. I mean, and again, I've been around theater people to some extent. It feels so truthful to the theater people that I know. Um, it just is such a wonderful detail that there doesn't need to be all this drama. Are we going to put the main character on uh, on meds or something else? This is just an accepted part of the reality. Yeah, where it's like you may not have known someone who saw a ghost, but you knew someone who had a certain tick and you just learned to go with it because it's just easier for everyone. Yeah, I think that... As you look at the show as it as it runs along through um, its three seasons, they really do build this sense of the theater as a community, as like all of these people who have sort of, I don't want to say they all have the same goal. They want to put on this show. But within that, they have conflicting goals. And that makes it possible, as well as the character of Oliver, who nobody else can see but Jeffrey, that makes it possible for the show to create do the creative con the creative process as an external conflict, which is the hardest thing to do 
in any show about making art. You need to find a way to show the creative process. And here they turn it into an ongoing argument between Jeffrey and Oliver or between some of the other characters. And that gets you really invested in these stakes of, is this show going to be any good? When really, I mean, they're fairly low stakes. Like if New Burbage doesn't put on a good production of Macbeth, like that's not going to end the world. But you get so invested in this relatively low, small-scale thing that, you know, a lot of shows would have trouble. Most TV shows, you know, especially in the American system, outside of your occasional parenthood, have trouble doing anything that isn't like life or death. And Slings and Arrows does so much in this regard and then makes it makes it feel life and death because, in a way, it is. If they don't live this fulfilled life, they're going to die in a way that, that feels incomplete. And I think that that's a beautiful thing about the show. I think the key is specificity. Yeah. And, you know, we, we get to know the characters on a, so deeply on a psychological level that by the time you get to the production phase, but like, let's say, the last two episodes of each season, you're so invested in, you know, the narrative of the play as well as the meta-narrative of what's going on with each character so that it's it's really a coup every time it happens because you're watching them put on an incredible play very well, but you're also invested in that deeper way. And that, of course, is the biggest sucker punch in season three when they get to King Lear for a variety of reasons. Yes. Well, and they do such a good job of stressing because it it is low stakes theoretically, but they do such a great job of stressing that for some of these actors, they may never get to play this part again. And they're such beloved plays and especially I mean, for just as an audience member somebody who enjoys Shakespeare these are beloved plays but if you're an actor in a Shakespeare company you might get one chance in your entire life to do Macbeth or to do Lady Macbeth or to play King Lear and so if you know if you're playing Juliet and you don't know if you'll ever play Juliet again and Darren Nichols is crushing your soul every day <laughs> that that is really significant and you yeah. know it, it doesn't have to be life and death and, you know, is somebody going to get run over by a giant ham truck every week? It can just be this lower, you know, lower stakes <laughs> reality. It's it's you connect more with the characters because they feel closer to something you could experience. Well, I think it's really um, I one of the shows that comes up as a touchstone with this show a lot is The West Wing, because that is another show that that brought you into a very insular world and made you care about it. And in both shows, they're, they show people who are really passionate about doing their jobs well, to whom doing the job, performing the work is the center of their existence. And if you get the right actors and and you have writers who are able to convey that, you really can get people invested in just about anything. Like, you know, I'm sure that there is there is the right team of actors and the right writer to make a show about, like, I don't know, grain farmers in Manitoba or something. Or TV bloggers. Yeah, and make that <laughs> – and as long as those people are really into their work and really interested in it, you can make that interesting. And, and you know, Slings and Arrows is sort of the ultimate example of that because there's a lot – like the business side of the theater I would not care about. But um, like the characters of Richard and Anna, I care about them, so I care about what they want to do. And, and I have to say Mark McKinney I think is tremendous. I mean all the actors are great, but Mark McKinney, you know, like he has – some beats that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be demanded of a character, uh, you know, someone with his background, at least from what I've seen. And I think uh, he just knocks it out of the park. He, of course, he, he's also one of the writers, so he deserves credit for several things. But I, Richard's set of arcs over the, the course of the series are, I think, some of the most surprising. And where they, especially where they decide to leave that character, I was left quite gutted. 
Yes, absolutely. He's uh, the character of Richard could so easily just be like the evil, angry foil who gets in Jeffrey's way. But what's interesting about the show is that they make Jeffrey a foil to Richard just as often as Richard is a foil to Jeffrey. And fundamentally, both men respect and want to like each other. But uh, well, I don't know if Jeffrey respects. That's probably the wrong <laughs> verb for his feelings on Richard. But fundamentally, both men, you know, they, they do make kind of a good team. Like we see times when they really are pushing each other to be better and they really are pushing the festival as a whole to be better. But what's great about it is that when Richard finally goes off on Jeffrey toward the end of season three, he's absolutely justified. Like there's there's no reason he shouldn't go off on Jeffrey. Our sympathies are with Jeffrey because he's the protagonist. But when you look at it from Richard's point of view, like Jeffrey – lied to him and created this terrible situation that has has created this huge problem for the festival. And Richard has every right to be extremely angry at Jeffrey. Well, and I, it's something that you run into in shows that are sent inside, uh, inside an artistic community, maybe. And it's something that you know I deal with as a classical musician, this no- notion of the difference between creating art for art's sake and creating art for an audience and the realities of Obviously, you you have to get find people to support the kind of art that you want to do, and that means you can't just go into a bubble of self importance. And this is what this play means to me. This is what I want to do, and money doesn't matter because that's not you know it's easy to say money doesn't matter when you're doing the theater sans argent, which gets closed down, and then you get carted off to jail, and then you don't have any opportunity to do your art anymore. The real the realities of financing the arts, I think, are really interesting and very challenging and it's nice to see that treated with you know an appropriate level of of respect nobody else in the show could really do what what richard does obviously where he ends up is not a happy place but but i think his importance to the festival is really appropriately balanced on the show I just want to quickly mention that that balance of art and commerce also gets you some stuff that you're not going to get on any other series ever which is the scenes with Richard and the culture minister, uh, who who used to be the health minister and and loathes that she's the culture minister now. And it's such a specifically, I mean, I suppose there are other countries where this could apply, but it's clearly not an American flourish. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've been thinking a lot about the show Orphan Black, which I really love, Um, but it is so obviously set in like, North America, you know, they don't really bother <laughs> specifying. They want you to sort of think of it simultaneously as Toronto and New York City, like a like it's a in a China Miaville novel or something. Yeah, there's a uh, Scarberia mention, but that's about yeah. it. Yeah, and you know, so it, it it's Toronto, but they don't really want to say it. It's like for better or for worse. But on Slings and Arrows, it is so obviously set in. It's in a fictional Canadian town, but it's so obviously set in like Ontario, and they have you know specific Canadian things, and that's. That's another fun thing about it for American viewers because um, I, w- I will be honest, uh, I don't know a lot about Canada, sadly. So that you know, you you kind of you kind of glean some things about about how uh, various things are set up there. Apparently, everybody says sorry a lot. We do, yes. We're all. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. We apologize so much. <laughs> well, these are three very distinct seasons, if only because of the way that they're structured around a central play. I'm curious. Do you guys have a preferred? season and then i also have to ask because i love the intro songs do you guys have a favorite introductory song to each season i i have always said i think the show gets better with every episode um so season three is my favorite 
But I think uh, my my wife's favorite is season two, and I I don't have a problem saying that. I think season two has some of the strongest moments in it, and I think the the premiere of season two is probably the strongest of the three premieres. Um, But I think season three has so much wisdom about death and finding satisfaction in your life before you die and, you know, people taking care of each other. And there are moments in it that are just just profoundly beautiful, especially in the back half of the season. And um, I honestly think its finale might be the best series finale of all time. Um, And it's it's you know, they talk every so often about like people talk about I want to see a fourth season of Slings and Arrows. And as much as I love this show, I never want to see that because it would it would muck with what I think is a perfect ending. Plus, the guy who played Cyril is dead. And who wants to do Slings and Arrows without Cyril? You can't do Slings and Arrows without Cyril. No, I, I, I think I agree with the season assessment. Uh, as for theme, I actually think um, the, the Mackers theme in season two is my favorite. Oh, yeah. I, for, I forgot to pick a theme. I, I'm going with Hamlet. Uh, the for the very first season theme, I get that stuck in my head all the time. Though I like "Call the Understudy," the end credits end credits music as well. Each of the songs are so so much fun, and you know, I, I'm obviously I'm more familiar with with Hamlet and Macbeth and King Lear. So the first couple times I'm listening to the song, I wasn't catching all the references. Then as you get more familiar with the play through the show, all of a sudden I'm getting way more of the jokes about eyes popping out and such <laughs> in the season three song. But yeah, I gotta give it to the Hamlet song just for uh, the answer is to be as I. Can, <laughs> Every I just want to going to want to yell that every time I hear that soliloquy now in a not live setting. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I, I think one of the most interesting things was the especially in that that final season was the way that the show balanced uh, comedy with drama and I think you know also the just the I, I always go back to with my experience doing pits for musicals I always go back to the whole Shakespeare versus the uh, the musical theater, which is a sort of a running theme throughout the series. But I, I think if we, by the time we get to that third series, it's all, it's, it feels almost 50-50, um, balancing the comedy and the drama. I was worried at first that I was going to miss the comedy, but I think it's still, they still managed to, to make the one not outbalance the other. When we first saw the heroine sequence, I was like, uh-oh, this is uh, going to be a lot darker. <laughs> And then they kind of, there is a bit of that, but they sort of, I appreciate, it feels like a very Canadian approach to heroin. It, <laughs> you have, just a, 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 somebody, In moderation? Well, just as opposed to now the character is spiraling out into what, it becoming, a, the character becoming defined by the fact that he's using heroin. Like, I just think of what that plot line would be on something like Smash, as opposed to here, where it just, he shoots heroin a few times and then... That's it. Is that the only one surprised? He's a be- he's a better actor when he shoots heroin too, like that because he that he's able to hold it together. He has we should say he has cancer and is dying, so he's he's sort of self medicating with heroin. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, one of the interesting things about season three is the way that they comment on the basic unreality of the musical East Hastings, um, but which is about heroin addicts. And like they overcome it through song and dance. And then you see this old guy who's dying from cancer and wants to play King Lear one last time before he dies. And he has to use this heroin to sort of keep himself together. And it becomes sort of this, it becomes a push and pull between the musical and, and King Lear. Um, and I, I, if I've, if one of my complaints with the series, I think is that sometimes the musical is unfairly maligned within the show. Like I get that it's from the point of view of the Shakespearean actors. Um, but, you know, there, there are times when we see the musical and it's, it's fairly, it's fairly well done. It's, it's, you know, for what it is, I would probably not see it, um, even though I do enjoy musicals, 
But, you know, there, there are some good catchy songs and all that. Um, so I do think, and I, I understand what they're going for, but I think they, I think that's one of those places where the six episodes, they just kind of missed the boat. I have to say though, that in, I, I see where you're coming from, but that sequence, and I think the first episode of season three, when they're intercutting the, the Lear synopsis, I guess you'd call it, or, you know, from, from the actor playing Lear with the synopsis of the musical is brilliant and just it shouldn't work at all just on a variety of levels first of all because it seems incredibly on the nose and second of all because you know it's such a dramatic tonal shift from one production to the other but the execution the editing the writing and the performance is so on is just so dead on and especially you know in the way that it it allows it, it allows you to draw those parallels but i think at that point isn't yet really demeaning that other production. I don't know. I think that to me was just uh, almost as incredible as the actual productions we get at the end of each sequence, at the end of each uh, series. That that's, I find it so interesting because for, for me, the, the musical, the music that we hear from it is just so incredibly insipid. (laughs) I really was not uh, uh, getting any strong, like, like the trying to be heard song. You get the sense within the show that it's this really powerful song. Whereas I'm watching this going, this is terrible. But what I think that being said, I think they do actually a surprisingly good job of showing the power of it. When you see that, that whole relationship develop with the one actor from Lear, basically just because he's so moved by this woman singing that even though they have nothing in common and he doesn't necessarily even respect her as an actor, he, there's so much power and such presence in her performance that 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 sparks an entire relationship. I don't know. I, th- I thought it was they're very different w- ways of of storytelling of, of telling a story, musicals and and plays. And I do think at least in in American culture, there's this. I mean, just look at the Tony Awards, which were this past week. Everybody's talking about uh, various the musical numbers or things about the the show. Very few people are talking about and who won best supporting actor in a dramatic play you know um there does seem to be an underappreciation of 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 the, the the plays as opposed to musicals so maybe because i'm looking at that from, from that perspective it didn't bother me to have you know a bit of a an opinion i guess from from the writers about these two shows but um i don't know i thought i thought it was an interesting an, an, an interesting parallel, and I expected to get really tired of East Hastings, but actually the more time we spent with it, the more I enjoyed those sequences. And uh, same thing with, with Darren, Darren Nichols. I expected to be completely tired of him and never want him back on after season one, but now I can't imagine watching this series if he wasn't on it. I totally agree about Darren Richard, and I I mean, it's sort of monotonous to just talk about how great any individual is, because the whole cast is just pitch perfect. And I think it's it's actually in terms of the ensemble, it's one of the most consistent across the board group performances of any series I've ever seen. Yeah, I I want to return to something you said about um, the the brilliance of the the editing between the the two productions. Reading you know the summary of the two productions, um, I think you know I, I kind of bagged on East Tastings a little bit, but I think that one of the nice things about it is that it gives Richard the artistic fulfillment he's been looking for all series. And then, of course, once he gets that, he becomes a complete monster, which is, which is like a really interesting way, interesting twist on how that story usually works. Right. Yeah. Because you expect at that point that he's, that's his happy ending, 
but you know you get there way too early so you're like oh, wait a second <laughs> and yeah. then yes what happens is just is is just awful and upsetting and uh and since we've talked about one technical aspect uh, the editing a little bit i just want to also mention the music on the show is fantastic yes the actual score i mean not the musical <laughs> and uh peter wellington's direction uh, is is just brilliant, especially especially I want to say in the first season where they had no money. Like you could tell they're making it on a, sh- on a shoestring budget, but he makes it look like like you know like a, a relatively well budgeted television series. And uh, it, even just the productions within the productions, I think, are, are really interesting and um, and creative. I like that they didn't go to that they did different things with those you you can see that they're trying to you know work with limited budget i like the budget comes up as one of the the things they have to overcome within the show but i like that some you know in one season it's it's a period in one season it's not uh did you guys have a a preference to the the various productions within because because I, I I'm a Shakespeare buff, so I get into that element of it. Does you know? Do you guys have a particular affinity with Shakespeare, and did that affect your enjoyment of the show? I I do love Shakespeare, um, and it's, this is sort of one of those classic questions you ask fans of the show. Um, the, I think the obvious answer is sort of like you want to see that Macbeth because it's such a success, and everything about it seems to work. And you know, Jeffrey saves it at the last second. But I've always wanted to see that one performance of King Lear that we get in the series finale in the church. It's like the church activity room or something, um, which only like 50 people are able to attend. I've, I've always thought that that would be um, kind of weirdly magical. And we get to see so much of it. We, In fact, we get to see so much of it in the series finale that it's almost like seeing a cut down of that play. And that's one of the reasons I love that series finale so much. I uh, I really love Jerry's Macbeth. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's just fa- I, I I think uh, that's it's one of the most uh, moving parts of the whole show, actually. And I think another part of the show that's so impressive is that you're building every, each season, you're building up to these productions. And it's another aspect of the show that just has to be perfect or it doesn't work. And obviously, perfect in this context isn't the same as perfect for an actual theatrical production. But in some ways, it, it's it's quite similar. And I don't know. I just I, I I'm just blown away by the fact that none of these productions, like the respective reception each production gets afterwards, feels correct based on what you've just seen, and that's not easy to do. But you know, you I would like to see Hamlet as well because it has a young Rachel McAdams in it, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. No, uh, and I, I, I you talked to the creators, Todd, so maybe you'll have an answer. But I I, I get I'm guessing that her the way that she exits at the beginning of season two was a bit of a, a meta moment. Yeah. It's, she basically, she had to leave the show cause her Hollywood career blew up. Um, they had big plans for her through the, the three season structure they dreamed up. And then they found out they were only going to get two days with her in season two. And that's a re- that's a reason why sometimes there are stories about the younger generation that's coming up. They do one story about that every season why they feel a little abrupt and flawed. It's because you have to keep meeting a new group of characters. And originally that was just supposed to be Kate, who was played by Rachel McAdams going through all these shows that shows within the show, basically. Right. Well, and you know, having read Hamlet, Ophelia is always a somewhat difficult character for me. And so I love seeing all the just discussion of her and the, the two different approaches were hilarious. Um, but, but I felt like I got a better understanding of the character from watching this, which was a fun little extra element for me. 
Well, I think that's a, that's a through line, and again, it comes down to specificity. You get so much discussion each season about what each character is experiencing, what the themes of the play really are, how to misread the play, how to misdirect, and how to potentially get it right. And so much of that, it, it, I think that's what makes it such an inviting series, even if you don't know jack shit about theater or Shakespeare, that they, you know, they're, they themselves, the actors and probably the writers of the show, they struggle with what the plays are about and what they really mean and don't mean. And because you're watching that process, it's they're letting you in on every possible level. Well, we are unfortunately at the end of our time. Do we have any final thoughts on Slings and Arrows? Uh, just that everybody should watch it. This is by far the show that people get the most skeptical about when I recommend it to them. It used to be Friday Night Lights, and we all saw how that turned out. Yeah. Um, so people get really skeptical when I recommend this to them, and I have I have a tendency of giving a bit of a hard sell about it, which is probably part of it too. But I have yet I, I've met one person who started this series and left and stopped watching it because he just hated it. Uh, but everybody else I've turned on to it has just loved it, and it's become one of their favorite shows. So watch was it. That, was that person's name Darren? No, no. They specifically they got upset about uh, an incident in the fourth episode when um, Kate has a uh she gets high and it's depicted as kind of crazy and like i thought that was more about kate's naivete than anything else and he thought it was about like condemning drug use or something and I, it was just one of those things so fair enough i think that the third season will prove that the the <laughs> the creators of slings and arrows are totally okay with drug use in certain totally, circumstances yeah, yeah. Simon, any final thoughts? Uh, well, I was one of the skeptics, uh, and I'm a, I'm now a, a total convert, and I'm looking forward to rewatching it. And 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 for any skeptics that are out there, I mean, whatever your feelings on the themes or the fact that it's Canadian, blah blah blah, it's so short. I mean, even if you get invested and just feel like if you're one of those people that has to finish things when you start them like begrudgingly, it's not going to take you that long. So like, come on, it's. It's probably shorter than one season of some crappier show you like. So come on. Well, and as for, you can just watch it on YouTube, if nothing else. I mean, I look forward to to you know finding the DVDs and getting those for my birthday. I think coming up here. Um, but if you're not sure if you want to commit to that, or even if you want to commit to getting the DVDs from Netflix, it's on YouTube. It's so easy to watch Slings and Arrows, and it's such a great show. You should absolutely do it. I think it would make an excellent pairing. Watch it over the next couple of weeks and then go see Much Ado About Nothing when it comes out on the 21st. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> that might be just you, but we'll see. I need, I need, that's playing in L.A. right now, and I'm hoping to go see it uh, soon. So, <laughs> Well, Todd, thank you again so much for coming on. Where can I, listeners, find your work online? <laughs> Uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash TVOTI. I have a podcast at uh, TVOTI.net, or you can find my writing at uh, avclub.com. Well, and thank you again for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.